As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Conscious Shift with Julianne Turner brings insights from leading voices and visionaries across the globe to guide and inspire you to create your own conscious shift into your true power and singular greatness. Through her expertise, author, speaker, and social innovator, Julianne Turner, a world authority on the creative process, guides you to discover how to consciously create the life, work, and world you most desire. And now, here's your Conscious Shift host, Julianne Turner. Welcome, everyone. This is Julianne Turner. So very glad that you're joining us today on Conscious Shift, and you are going to be glad that you did as well, because today we are going on a journey from science fiction to science fact. And what may astonish you is that not only will it be fun, but it's no longer going to be just fantasy. And let's face it, we've always been fascinated by the future, haven't we? From the heroes of the space race to the holograms in Star Wars to uh, flying cars in the, the Jetsons cartoon <laughs> to, you know, the bionics in TV's Six Million Dollar Man. You know, pop culture has been filled with the future. But more than most of us may realize... Our Conscious Shift guest today, Stephen Kotler, author of the book Tomorrowland, is going to be sharing with us that science future is actually here now in so many ways that it will just astonish all of us. And I want to welcome Stephen back to Conscious Shift today. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely, Stephen. And, and uh, our, our listeners all across the globe may remember that you are, uh, you know, a best-selling author, uh, an award-winning journalist, and also, in your own right, an expert in human performance in the flow state, uh, which we may talk about, uh, if not on this show, on another one soon. Uh, but your book, Tomorrowland, really is about how you've discovered and really searched out and reported on these beyond disruptive technologies uh, all across all across the globe that are already uh, in action, if you will. And so I wonder if we could start out and talk about 
you know, how you, your imagination was sparked by this, how you were kind of, you know, your hair was blown back, if you will, by uh, maybe, maybe even start with the X Prize and how you and Peter uh, Diamandis For sure. uh, kind of connected on that. So this was, uh, was back in, was in the 90s, and Peter Diamandis, who uh, became my partner, and I co-wrote Abundance and Bold, which was the very first time we met. And he had just created the X Prize, which was the private, uh, the private race into space, right? It was $10 million for the first person or team people to build a private spaceship that was capable of going into space twice in two weeks. And we met, and we met at a diner in uh, kind of Chinatown, San Francisco, and we're kind of sitting in the back of the diner, and Peter is telling me about the X Prize, and he's getting more and more and more excited and you know, someday soon, some maverick innovator is going to take down NASA and the whole restaurant. Everybody in the entire restaurant is staring at him, looking at him <laughs> like he's absolutely nuts. And he's got his back to the, everybody else. They can't see anybody, but I can see everybody in the restaurant. They're all looking at him like, who is this madman who's <laughs> shouting about, you know, private spaceships? And I'm looking at him, and I actually had the exact opposite reaction. That's what I noticed. I had just come. I had just spent a month in the Black Rock Desert with a bunch of people who were trying to drive a car through the sound barrier, and they succeeded. And everybody, it was all aerospace engineers, and they had told me the entire month long, driving a car through the sound barrier is harder than putting a person into orbit or into space. Mm. And I had heard it for an entire month, so when Peter was saying this, this stuff and everybody thought he was crazy, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, oh my God, he's right. This is going to happen, because I know we just drove through the sound barrier, and I know that's harder. And it sort of, you know, blew my mind, and you know, in less time than it, it took to drink a cup of coffee, basically, a paradigm had shifted me. Right, science fiction had become science fact, and I was blown away. And I went home and I made a list of I don't know what the full list was twenty five, twenty seven technologies that grew as I went along, all of which were kind of sci fi technologies, technologies that I had kind of considered in that category that I had grown up with, and. I made a list, and that list for you know defined essentially the next two decades of my career as a journalist, and so I had you know the, the amazing opportunity to be in the history in the room over and over and over when history happened. First artificial vision implant was turned on. I was there when the first private spaceship took off. I was there. A lot of this stuff I got to see up close and personal. I got to meet the maverick innovators who were really ushering kind of tomorrow and today. And I, I really got to watch science fiction turn into science fact up close. And it was, you know, it was an astounding few decades for sure. Well, Stephen, I want to talk about, uh, you know, each kind of, se- you know, section of the book. You do such a great job in kind of dividing the book into three sections, you know, the future uh, kind of in here within us, like, you know, the bionics, um, you know, uploading consciousness, uh, you know, the biology of spirituality, the future of evolution, and, and, you know, things like the first artificial vision implant. Then you talk about the future out there, things that are happening like nuclear energy and flying cars and that asteroid mining, that kind of thing. And then the future, what you call the future uncertain, which <laughs> maybe you could have just had one section <laughs> about right. the future uncertain, right? Um, uh, life extension, you know, stem cells, hacking DNA, the future of birth, those kinds of things. I want to touch on each one, but I wonder if we might just take up, you know, almost like a, a, a sacred pause here to say, is this journey that you've taken being present for these breakthroughs and and really being with these visionaries, what had informed you and Peter when you see such hope, see such abundance 
uh, potential for our future? Well, you, it's you know it's obviously incredibly exciting, and and you know this was the, this was the same content. You know, th- there's different stuff in Tomorrowland, but you know when we wrote Abundance, one of the reasons I was confident writing a book about how the world is getting better at an astounding rate is because I had witnessed it up close and personal in yeah. bold. Right, we we took it sort of the next step, which is, hey, wait a minute, this technology is just accelerating radically quickly, and it's gonna, you know, this is how any entrepreneur can get involved. It was a playbook, it was an action plan, and then Tomorrowland sort of is the next step in the chain, which is not only, hey, science fiction is turning to science fact, but I'm widening it out, and I'm saying, look, this is having a massively disruptive impact on culture, and not in the way that we have been talking about, like what is happening where, where science fiction and science fact are kind of turning into, you know, becoming reality. The changes, the, the, where, where it's starting to hit us is very, very deep in kind of who we are and what it means to be human. And it's a very, very fundamental shift. And, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any way we come out at the end of the century, you know, anywhere like we started. Um, I think the change is going to be so radical and it's going to impact us so deeply, you know, into our, in our biology and our evolutionary psychology, that sort of thing, that it's, you know, it's going to radically change who we are on this planet. Exactly. And so it's, it's much more than, you know, than what, when people talk about disruptive technologies, disruptive is like not even close to, uh, uh, to a strong enough term for the kind of impact this is going to have uh, philosophically, spiritually, politically, economic, you know, economic implications. And, and so um, as we touch on some of these uh, astounding uh, future, you know, uh, futuristic kinds of technologies, um, in the background, and we will touch on them too, Stephen, as, as, as uh, seems appropriate, you know, there are, there are deep, deep kind of uh, conscious questions about some of these things as well. Yeah, you know, bionics, which I opened the book with bionics, and, and there's a reason because you can, bionics is so clear. So first of all, you know, if you're of a certain age, you grew up with a $6 million man. <laughs> and, right, it was like, it was your, one of your most vivid memories of science fiction technologies. So, you know, obviously I've been tracking bionics. I got a chance to spend... And, you know, the crazy story is the day I met him, we were in Boulder, Colorado, and it was a cold, rainy winter day. And the streets were slick, there were snow drifts, there were water puddles, and we're, we're walking and we're talking, and we're in a really animated conversation, and we come to a four-lane street. And there's traffic flying back and forth, and me, the able-bodied guy, does what anybody does when you come to a busy four-lane street. You stop. The bionic man, on the other hand... He's so lost in conversation that he comes up to this four-lane street and he, you know, pauses for a second and he literally, like, jumps across the first lane of traffic, freezes, darts, sort of darts right and then darts left to get across the next two lanes, hops over a snowbank, bounces over a puddle and sort of pirouettes literally onto the sidewalk with no idea he's done it. None whatsoever. Oh my he's gosh. just talking to me and he's caught up in conversation and this is just, he's just crossing the street. He went like it was full Walter Payton across the street, right? It was like an NFL running back. He's a big guy, too, so good, like go, charging across the street. And um, so when I say we have a fully functional you know, bionic ankle, it is really functional. The crazy part <laughs> is that was where we were you know, a few years ago. Where we are today is that 50% of the human body is replaceable with bionics, right? We've got 
dads who are using 3D printing to print 3D bionic limbs for their kids who wear prosthetics. Um, in fact, you can get Custom Bionics is a London-based company. They make a, a very high-functioning 3D printable bionic arm that costs less than $1,000. We've got mind-brain interfaces that are so sophisticated, paraplegics and quadriplegics can operate their real-life bionic limbs with their mind. Now, where this starts to impact on consciousness and things like, we, like that is next year, 2016, we're going to see the first kind of strap-on bionics. These are exoskeletons. Mm-hmm. So you've got a bad knee. Now we've got a bionic knee for you. It's, it's strapped on. It's, it's like a, a bionic knee brace. Not only does it help your knee fold exactly in the right direction it needs and all that stuff, but it puts energy back into the system, which is what real-life limbs do. They take the energy of gravity and they put it back into the system, which is, you know, as we're walking forward, gravity is also propelling us forward because we're constantly falling, catching ourselves and falling, right? That, that motion is captured by the body. Right? Mm. Our bionics are now starting to capture that energy. What this means is we're putting energy back into the system. So right now, the worst part about getting old, we know this, study after study, is loss of mobility, right? One of the main reasons the retirement age is 65 is because we lose mobility as we get older, right? It's the number one reason people go into nursing homes at this point. Well, as of next year, that problem starts to go away. Literally, right? So this is technology that literally, physically makes you young again. Now, at a society-wide level, right, this is going to shift the retirement age, among other things, because people are going to be able to work longer and longer and longer, and they're going to want to work longer and longer and longer. At a deeper conscious level, you know, we have been getting old and dying and losing control of our limbs and losing use of our limbs since that we have been life on this planet, right? It is a standard part of any life cycle, any organism, right? We, get, we lose function as we get older. So my argument is essentially we think we're, new, we're building new bodies, right? We think of replacement parts, or strap-on bionics, new bodies. But I think we're going to end up with new minds as well. I think we're, this, this kind of intervention is so fundamental and it's so contradictory to what kind of evolution hardwired us to expect and anticipate that it's going to really change the way we think about the world. And Stephen, as you've, as you've explored this and you've witnessed this, do you have a sense, just an initial sense of how you, how you think this consciousness is going to change? Do you have any sense of that yet? <laughs> you know, it's a great question. It's interesting. Nobody's asked me that yet. It's a fantastic question. Um, and no, I actually have no idea. I really, I mean, you know, I, I could default and sort of pat it with science, which is to say, hey, look, the blood brain is a really complex system. And what we know about complex systems is when you make small changes in initial conditions, you get huge changes in outcomes. I think what we're seeing right now are the small changes in, in these initial conditions. Um, I don't think, I think some of this stuff is still too new, right? And I think when this stuff actually starts happening right now, it's science fiction turning into science fact. In a couple of months, a couple of years, it's every day. We're not even going to notice it. That's the other thing. Not really in the book, but there's a lot of sci-fi technologies that turned into science fact without anybody noticing, right? They're just kind of incorporated into our lives. Ray Kurzweil famously made this observation about artificial intelligence. He said one of the reasons we don't notice artificial intelligence is because every time we get something that looks like artificial intelligence, we call it something else, like an ATM machine. Right? Mm. A talking ATM machine is a really crude AI, right? But we don't, we haven't 
done it that way. We haven't thought about it that way. I think when, to, to start looking at the shift, it's got to kind of work its way into culture a little bit more. Well, you brought up uh, a kind of one of the central, the central pivot points or central questions, right, is, you know, not just the body, the bionics for the body. Um, let's, let's take that shift, that kind of Kurtz, you know, uh, Kurtzweilian shift, if that's a word, <laughs> um, toward, you know, artificial intelligence and, you know, actually being able to work with the brain and the mind. And, you know, Kurtzweil uh, really <laughs> h- helped us kind of uh, look at, at, at the science fiction of Terminator, you know, the, the, uh, the idea of uh, Skynet and the singularity, you know, of human consciousness and machine uh, technology coming together. What, ha- what have you seen in that realm that, that even surprises you? Well, the article, the, 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 there's a section tomorrow then where I talk about mind uploading. And this is, this is something else that, that, that Ray talks about. Mind uploading is, is the idea that there's going to come a point that we can record our lives and store that recording or store the recording of the brain on silicon. We can store ourselves and our lives and our personalities on silicon. It's a kind of you know, silicon-based immortality. And it's known as mind, mind uploading. And it sounds, and it is, I think, in the book, I think it's the most far-reaching technology there. It's the one that's the farthest out. But the weird thing is, I started looking at it back in 2000 because a British company, um, actually a division of British Telecom, um, their big research arm, was looking at this seriously. And the really crazy thing is, at that point, they had a very scaled-down version of this. They said, hey, wait a minute. We're going to try to record all the input of our senses, all the five senses, and then we just need you know, a powerful enough kind of computer in the middle that can translate these signals into experiences, and then we need a playback device. And we will have – their idea was – can we build a technology that so records the life of a, you know, the mind of a Beethoven or a Richard Feynman or an Albert Einstein so that when these great geniuses die, we can have a record of how they thought, actually, which is really interesting because, if, you know, a lot of these people, Feynman, for example, was famous for his kind of wild intuitive leaps. Their argument is you could then get inside his thinking and actually come to understand, make those own leaps yourself, sort of an educational idea. So all of this sounds cuckoo, except that back in 2000, we already had all the recording devices that, that for the census. They could already do that, right? That was they were trying to blend them into a singular device. But we had the we kind of had the five things. The 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 central the computer that was just you know a matter of kind of exponential growth charts, and sooner or later it's going to be powerful enough to kind of take that sensory input and turn it into you know process it into experience in a playback device. They were waiting for was a robust virtual reality device, which, you know, with the next iteration of Oculus, right, not the version that Facebook paid a billion for, but what it's going to look like after they put a billion into it, you've got the complete system. Yeah. Maybe this will not not actually produce consciousness, right? But their date for this, they think it will be done by 2025. Ray Kurzweil has famously said, hey, look, machines, humans, we're going to start blending in, in 2045, so this should, you know, come of age then, but where this gets really interesting, right, to me, is again, once again, where it's going to start impacting culture. And, and, I, and, I, and I like to talk about religion here because if you look at all five of the world's major religions, right, they, they use threat of the hereafter, what happens next, to kind of shape behavior in this life. So what happens to theological morality in the face of technological immortality? 
it sounds like a crazy question, but looking at where mind uploading is and looking at the exponential curves underpinning the growth of technology, it's not outrageous to say, hey, whoa, sometimes, sometimes this century, this is a question we're actually going to have to answer for real. And that's what I, you know, that, that's when you start, that's why I said this stuff isn't yet in culture, right? We're now starting to undermine kind of fundamental religious beliefs. And once that starts to spread into culture, culture is going to, you know, our world's religions are going to assimilate it, not assimilate it, break apart, sprint, splinter, become something new. You know, I, I think it's, you know, I think we're looking at kind of the beginning of, of a lot of new religions is what I think we're looking at. Mm. Yeah, it's very clear, uh, you know, as you, as you paint this picture, Stephen, that our consciousness has to catch up. And I think that's why, you know, when I ask you that first question, it's like, uh, I'm not surprised that you, you hadn't uh, uh, assimilated even from your deep investigation an answer to that yet. You know, what, what kinds of shifts may come? Because it's, it's, it's almost too early to tell. What I, what I loved about what you said, Stephen, was you just described that, that there, you know, this is upon us, a company that has the technology to, to have these reading devices uh, to, to mirror our five senses, uh, the computer uh, capacity to uh, accomplish this kind of uh, uploading technology. The playback devices are now coming in in terms of virtual reality. And then you said, and then when it gets really interesting... <laughs> It's like, oh, that's not interesting enough. You know, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing. All of this is just, it really is uh, uh, astonishing that this is already here now. There's a, the Carlos Fuentes wrote a, wrote a book called Terra Nostra, and the opening scene, the Seine River starts boiling over, turns into tar pitch and starts boiling over, becomes blood red and starts boiling over, and it's a miracle for the first couple of weeks. But by week two, it's a pain in the butt for fishermen, and it's destroying industries. And, you know, and, it, and, it's, and, and, and it, his point is, you know, the miraculous becomes the everyday very, very, very quickly, right? Which is the interesting thing. So, like, I've been around these technologies for so long, so they're everyday to me at this point, and it's the, the next step out that I'm looking at and going, oh, well, well, that's really weird. You thought this was weird? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, uh, before we close, I may just put that question aside. You know, what's the really weirdest thing that you've ever heard of? We'll save that one for for nearer the end of our conversation. Um, But, you know, what you're talking about, Stephen, too, I wonder if you have a sense about this. Um, One of the things about humanity is that we do seem to assimilate things really quickly. The, we the, the things that were astonishing yesterday, um, societal shifts. I mean, we look at Caitlyn Jenner, you know, and this whole uh, concept of uh, transgender and all of this. It's, there's been a sea change in um, the the exploration, the dialogue around that, and and we seem to assimilate things quickly uh, as a society in general. Um, and, and, and things that yesterday were an unthinkable or unheard of can become everyday really quickly. Are, are there some places in your exploration where you've, uh, you've been amazed at how quickly uh, some of these technologies became, you know, uh, normal? Yeah. It, um, 
I have, um, I mean, the the one that shocks me, honestly, the most is, um, you know, in in the book, I look at the kind of psychedelic renaissance, the fact that, that these psychedelic compounds, which have been kind of the most hated substances on earth for 40 years, Nixon started the drug war in 72, are now, you know, once again being used to treat some of the most intractable conditions, PTSD, cluster headaches called suicide headaches because they're, they're so painful, end-of-life anxiety, OCD, addiction, really, it really, really, you know, incurable diseases, and we're seeing psychedelics come back. And, you know, I was a journalist forever, and one of the other things that I always covered, um, and it just, I got assigned a story very early on, and I just stayed with it, was the drug war. So I got to watch kind of the psychedelic revolution from, you know, when, no, when there was no research whatsoever allowed in the United States to, oh, wow, this guy named Rick Strassman is doing this very strange experiment, you know, at the University of New Mexico, sort of hidden away to, oh, my God, this stuff is at Harvard and Johns Hopkins and really prestigious institutes. And I also got to see kind of the cutting edge of the cutting edge, sort of what, like, the psychedelic underground therapists are doing, where it's not, you know, where they're using multiple psych, multiple drug protocols and they're, they're taking really aggressive, you know, attempts to treat really, really difficult conditions. And so, you know, there's, I saw the above ground stuff, what's becoming legal now and, and normal and, and the cutting edge of the underground and, and seeing where we started and, you know, seeing how vicious the drug war was and how many people died and how many people went to jail and watching kind of researchers persist and persist and persist against, you know, the most outrageous odds. You would have never bet on these people to succeed with this particular quest. And so to me, that's, that's honestly, of all the things, it's probably the least sci-fi of any of the technologies, right? Except it's, you know, fundamental SOMA, Brave New World. Like those, those drugs, you know, those ideas are in science fiction all over the place, um, just in different versions. But that's the one that actually shocks me the most because, you know, I think throughout the book, right, one of the, one of the things that I really look at is how difficult it is to invent the future, right? Mm. We, all, we hear about these technologies like, oh, my God, here, look, it's this cool futuristic technology. But as a general rule, we are pulled kicking and screaming into the future, right? There's enormous resistance on uh, levels and the battles the researchers have to fight. Nobody, nobody's invented the future that I met would come out of the mainstream. They're all mavericks, and they all have kind of enormous will on a certain level and have fought for these technologies. You see it in stem cells. You see it in life extension technologies. You see it in psychedelics. Um, even the researchers, I, you know, I, I talk about the neurobiology of spiritual experience, right? The people who have kind of decoded out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences and trance states and meditative states. And, you know, this was career suicide in the 90s. And... They did it anyways and persisted and persisted, and the technology caught up with it. And suddenly, you know, we've gone from, hey, you had an out-of-body experience. You must be crazy. We should lock you up into, oh, my God, we know the exact brain mechanism that produces that experience. Turns out everybody's hardwired for these experiences. We've now got technology that can trigger these experiences. And, you know, the researchers who drove that forward were incredibly brave. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you've picked up uh, a couple more threads that are just fascinating. Um, uh, we're going to take a, just a very quick, breathless break here, and then we're going to come back and pick up on that thread, uh, Stephen, if it's okay, just a little bit about um, what you were talking about in terms of 
the, the spirituality um, and, uh, you know, what scientists are learning about that kind of consciousness and triggering that kind of experience. Uh, we'll be right back. This is Julianne Turner. You're listening to Conscious Shift, and we are talking about the future is here now. the voices and visionaries shared here on Conscious Shift with Julianne Turner from spiritual guides like Marianne Williamson, Barbara Marks Hubbard, and Don Miguel Ruiz to creative sparks like Julia Cameron of The Artist's Way and inspiring business gurus like Seth Godin and Daniel Pink. Then you'll love being able to grasp their wise guidance and apply their step-by-step wisdom to the new Conscious Shift Notes Action Guide series. A version of Cliff Notes for each Conscious Shift show. With Conscious Shift Notes, they not only give you the engaging full audio interviews from each Conscious Shift visionary and the full written transcript, but now they've also taken each Conscious Shift show interview and distilled it down to its essential essence. So you get each Conscious Shift show summarized on just a few colorful visual pages with bullet points, highlights, and key quotes so you can grasp the key points at one glance. Want to know the best news? Conscious Shift host Julianne Turner wants you to experience the inspiration of their new Conscious Shift Notes absolutely free for a limited time. With her free gift of their first Conscious Shift Notes, Action Guide and Audio Series with Seth Godin, go to ConsciousShiftShow.com to receive your free gift now. In your free gift, Conscious Shift Notes said, Multiple New York Times bestselling author and creative visionary Seth Godin shares in detail exactly how you can discover and profit from your own unique genius and start doing what really matters to you and to the world. Your first step is to go to ConsciousShiftShow.com right now to receive your free Conscious Shift Notes, Action Guide, and Audio, along with their Conscious Shift Show updates from their growing global community of fellow visionaries. Most important, you'll also get to see how you can access all their Conscious Shift Show wisdom in their brand new Conscious Shift Notes collections around transformational topics they've shared, like prosperity, life purpose, creativity at work, transformational leadership, and many more. In fact, their first Conscious Shift Show Notes collection on prosperity is available now and includes Marianne Williamson on the law of divine compensation, Julia Cameron on a prosperous heart, Dan Pink on To Sell as Human and Adam Grant on Give and Take, How True Leadership Starts with a Giving Mindset and much more. Go to ConsciousShiftShow.com right now to claim your Conscious Shift Notes, Action Guide and Audios to guide you step by step to make your own Conscious Shift into your true greatness today. Welcome back, everyone. This is Julianne Turner. You are listening to Conscious Shift. And today we are talking about how science fiction has already turned into science fact with New York Times bestselling author uh, Stephen Kotler, the author of Tomorrowland, 
uh, among other books. Uh, Tomorrowland, Our Journey from Science Fiction to Science Fact. Stephen, just before the break, we were talking about uh, a couple more fascinating topics. One was psychedelics, um, really how uh, scientists are now uh, uh, using those kind of chemicals uh, to help with PTSD, everything from PTSD to addiction uh, to cluster headaches. And so what came to mind for me, and I just want to touch on this because I think many of our listeners may be wondering about this as long as we've been kind of mixing pop culture with uh, with science fiction, and that is this idea of nootropics, of, of kind of the limitless, if you've seen that movie, the limitless pill, uh, uh, NZ48 uh, pill that you could take, and it's a brain-enhancing drug that just, uh, you know, that kind of feeds into that idea of, you know, if we're only using 10% of our brain, then this takes us to 100%. What do you see and what, what's your sense of the future and the timing for that? I, you know, I, I, t- I take a contrarian view here. And this is a question that comes up a lot in flow research. People want to know when can I have flow in a pill. And the issues are twofold. The first is that to really have the impact we want to have, we need to alter neurochemistry. How do we measure it? Right, right now, we can measure the downstream metabolite breakdowns of it in the bloodstream, which is a very crude, poor picture and not accurate at all. But even if I could measure neurochemicals at the ion channel level, I have to put the sensor so deep into your brain to do so. There's no, I can't perform the operation. There's no ethical way to perform the operation. And we'd have to do it on so many tens of thousands of people. How would you do that study? So I don't see the research happening very, very quickly. And I also see in all the other domains that surround it, other interventions, technological interventions to change our brain states and our consciousness um, that, you know, are coming online now and are, you know, are very, very useful. So I also, I don't, I I think some of the driving force behind that is going to go away. I think, you know, this is sort of what had the the life extension movement got started, got a lot of press, um, a lot of the early work was kind of hormone replacement, steroid things, steroid precursors, whatnot. There was a lot of there's business to be, there's money to be made in those kind of performance supplements that it's gone into brain supplements. And I just I just don't think we know. And the other side of it is what we know from medicine, more and more the frontier of medicine is individualized medicine, end to one, right? Drugs for one person. The frontier of cancer drugs right now is end to one drugs, making drugs for everybody individually. Why? Because every cancer is individual. More and more, it seems like everybody is individual. And what a lot of the research into these substances show is what works for me is probably not going to work for you. And moreover, a lot of the stuff that seems to work only works for a very limited time. The body gets very used to this stuff very, very, very fast. And it doesn't seem like mega doses work. And mega doses can really screw you up with some of these supplements. Mm. Exactly. So, so the the net of it, at least right now, is it's it's a very it's a very experimental and uh, individualized kind of crapshoot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, we you know, I, the, uh, there are there's certain things. I you know, the the, the the U.S. Special Forces did phenomenal research on fish oil, right? Which we all know is really good for for the nervous system. So there right. are there's stuff out there where I'm like, absolutely, this makes a ton of sense. Um, but there are everything. There's so much. So much of this stuff is is, is very gray area. 
Right. And and the the long term uh, effects are so unknown. Uh, it's a very dangerous to experiment on oneself, I would say. And and we could talk about this. I'm sure we could fill a show with just this topic. Um, but thank you for giving us that perspective on that, Stephen. And and flowing right out of that, using the word flow, um, you were talking also just about the break of before the break about um, uh, really the science in terms of uh, brain science in terms of triggering experiences that have been equated with spiritual experiences, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences. <coughs> you were, you know, cluing us in that the the science is now there to be able to say these are the mechanisms that are at play here. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you've witnessed about that and, and you know, what are some of the questions that, you know, the, the, the uh, philosophical questions that, that are being raised? Well, it, so at a very general level, what we're starting to realize is that a staggering array of so-called altered states of consciousness, from dreams to hallucinations to out-of-body experiences to near-death experiences to trance states and meditative states, speaking in tongues, whatever, and on and on and on, the same sort of things are happening in the brain. Parts of the brain are turning on, others are shutting off, signals are being tuned accordingly, but they're very similar systems, right? There's a giant overlap between what happens to your brain on psychedelics, for example, and what happens to your brain, you know, during profound meditative experiences and what happens to your brain um, when you're dreaming. There's a big overlap there, right? And in probing this, we're, we've, we've started to realize that, you know, first of all, far from kind of anomalous experiences, everybody's hardwired for these experiences, which explains, by the way, when Gallup does, did a survey, they found that, you know, 20% of the population has had either an out-of-body or near-death experiences. These experiences are very common, right? Paranormal means outside the bounds of normality. It turns out these things are very normal. Right. We're all hardwired to have these experiences. And... You know, it really, what it really says is, look, there's this entire upper possibility space of human experience um, that we don't know a hell, hell of a lot about, right? We had different names for this over the years. I, I lo- the Greeks had the best name. Our word ecstasy, right, if you can get past the club drug references, comes from right. ecstasis, the Greek word ecstasis, which essentially is to go beyond. It's the act of getting out of your head, literally, and... <laughs> We don't, we're developing a whole range of kind of, you know, we're starting to explore the ecstatic, understand the ecstatic, and be able to you know, create technology that can reproduce these experiences, which is where it gets really interesting. It does. It gets, it gets interesting, and, and uh, uh, philosophical questions, you know, are, are uh, inherent in that. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, one thing I do want to say, because you asked the philosophical question, and let me, let me give you the philosophical add-on, which is, you know, we know a great deal at this point, and atheists and are, are very quick to seize on this and use it as, you know, proof that they're right, right? Hey, these experiences, we, we understand them mechanistically. For the most part, there are a couple of big questions still, but for the most part, we understand the mechanism, understand where they're coming from. So, you know, clearly there's no God, or whatever you want to call that, right? And I am mostly agnostic, and I lean very heavily towards the atheist side of that equation, but, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at it and go, hey, wait a minute, every experience is mediated by the brain. That's what we know. So all we're saying is, you know, our experience of this so-called divine or ecstatic, you know, is mediated by the brain. That's totally normal. 
it would be really weird if it wasn't, right? Like, that would be proof that maybe this wasn't going on, but it, it, it's not proof either way of any of the bigger philosophical questions. It just says, hey, the same mechanism that, you know, the universe used to create life seems to be creating this, these so-called mystical experiences, right? The same biology. Exactly. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for sharing that and, and articulating that so eloquently. Um, I, I couldn't have said it better. And, that, and that's... Uh, and that's really so 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 fascinating, right? Yes, um, we understand the technology. We don't necessarily uh, we can't say definitively what the source is. <laughs> but we're managing. I mean, what's really great is we're managing to tr- turn mythology into technology, right? That's what's really important here, um, and it's uh, what it's allowing us to do. Because the other side of this coin is. We've also discovered these so-called spiritual experiences, psychedelic experiences, flow state experiences, etc., meditative kind of trances, whatever. They're very good for you, right? There's fascinating research. For example, Willie B. Britton did this crazy study with near-death experience patients, people who have had near-death experiences. And, and her, it's a very simple idea. She's a scientist at the University of Arizona, and she said, hey, wait a minute. Most people who get up and close and personal with death, they got PTSD, right? These near-death experience patients, when you give them kind of happiness studies or, or surveys or, you know, uh, well-being stuff, they score off the charts for life satisfaction. So that's peculiar. That's an atypical response to trauma. Let's see if it's real. So what she did is she used EEG and did a sleep study, measured the brain waves during sleep. And it turns out we can use what time, when you go into REM sleep, as a phenomenal predictor of mood. So depressed people go into REM at like 60 to 70 minutes, right? That's when they start dreaming. Normal people, average mood, go in kind of 70 to 90, that parameters. And very, very happy people go in 90 to 100 above, right? Mm. When they looked at kind of the brainwaves of people who had near-death experiences, they saw them going into REM sleep at like 110 minutes. It was off, it's off the charts for kind of happiness and life satisfaction. So what the science is showing is these things aren't just psychologically transformative. They're biologically transformative. They're rewiring the brain. They're rewiring the body. Um, and that's, I mean, not that the idea that spiritual experiences are good for you is new, right? That's a fairly old idea, actually. Right. But it's one for the past 300 years that we've looked at with considerable suspicion, right? So, and I still, I, I still cringe at the word spiritual. I don't know what it means, and it makes me really uncomfortable, but it describes a class of experience that, you know, that we wanted to label as, you know, otherworldly. It turns out they're not. But the, the crazy part is... They are actually transformative. These literally are transformative experiences. Exactly, and and so it is. Isn't it interesting? Um, you know, over over the last decades, over the last centuries, science continues to um, explore uh, the underpinnings of spiritual concepts, spiritual ideas, and they keep kind of interestingly matching up to to be positive, to be good for us in that way. Um, so, so there, there, as you said, uh, Stephen, it raises interesting questions, but it doesn't really, um, it's the questions still remain, the consciousness questions still remain. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to explore this and be open to exploring it. Um, and, uh, and so I, that's why I really appreciate your uh, honest and earnest 
inquiry into all of these technologies in Tomorrowland. Uh, and again, we've just scratched the surface. I, I would I would love to um, touch on just a couple of others um, that just to give people a a little bit of an uh, uh, you know just a, like a little taste <laughs> of the uh, of the scope of the things that you talk about in Tomorrowland. Um, one of the things that I think maybe on a lot of people's minds in addition to life extension is kind of like the future of birth. You know, are we going to be with DNA and stem cells and those kinds of things? Are we going to be kind of crafting our own Gattaca babies, you know, <laughs> to, to once again kind of dip into pop culture and sci- sci-fi there? No, it's um, a great question. And the answer is yes, but no. Um, <laughs> and here's what I mean. A lot of people have, you know, if we, we have fractured evolution. We have stepped on the gas we, over the past 300 years and completely hijacked evolution, right? And we see this in very simple things. We see it in the fact that longevity has quadrupled, right, in the past 200 years from where it had been for the previous 200,000, essentially. We gain, by the way, every day because technology is accelerating so quickly and because of life extension technologies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you gain five hours of life expectancy every day right now. No exercise needed. Wow. Um, so, you know, that at a genetic level, this is also, as you know, Juan Enriquez from Harvard has said repeatedly, this is kind of the decade that we take control over our genomics, right? He says this is the end of our species. Homo sapiens, we're going to become... Um, uh, what's his what's his word for it? Homo evolutus, which means the first hominid to take control over their evolution. Now, the flip side of this, this is where you know why we're not going to be producing Gattaca babies is yes, for sure, um, we are going to take control of our children at a really deep and fundamental level. But as you know, kind of Andrew Hessel has pointed out, a synthetic biologist who who. I, interview in the book, and I actually worked with on part of the book, um, he says, look, you know, we're gonna, we can take control, control of our genome, but we're still humans. We're an endlessly creative. So there's going to be as many lineages as there is, you know, examples of human creativity, right? We're going to be doing different things to our babies. Now, where this gets really interesting is it doesn't take much to say, hey, after a bunch of generations, some of those babies aren't going to be able to interbreed, right? They, they'll have actually evolved, you know, out of the ability to mate together, right? And what this means then literally is we're a new species, like according to every definition of the term, right? You can't, when you, when you can no longer mate, you fractured into a new species. And that's where this is leading, which is interesting. It's not, and it's sort of leading back us back into the past, right? It's very, we live in a very rare time that we're the only hominid species on the planet right now, but historically, there were lots of different lineages alive at once. And it, instead of Gattaca babies, we may be going back in that direction where there's lots of different lineages of human species of humans, hominids on the planet. Mm. Wow, that is fascinating. <laughs> exactly. My mind's kind of uh, just trying to wrap itself around what you just said. Um, and thank you for that, Stephen. Uh, I think this conversation is just, uh, uh, it, it's amazing that we can have this conversation and that, and that you have captured um, uh, all of these ideas for, for us in Tomorrowland and that your uh, journalistic research has 
has helped is, is helping us see the potentials here and ask these questions and start to get our minds um, you know accustomed to to this is happening now and what does it mean for us and I think that in in that way um, like every shift we also have our inner reflection about what does that mean for us individually given our beliefs our uh, value system um, our relationships and and it, and, it, and it ripples out from there um, so that we can begin to uh, to adapt and also see as you come back to Stephen in each case also see the hope in this also see the potential in this um, and and not be afraid of asking and exploring these questions and ideas so uh you can anything you want to know about my, me and Tomorrowland. You can find it at stephencotler.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R.com. And if you're interested in, in in the research I do on flow on ultimate human performance, the best best place for that is the Flow Genome Project, which is F-L-O-W-G-E-N-O-M-E Project P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot com. Okay, and the book, uh, Stephen, we can find on uh, Amazon. Amazon, yeah, for sure. And, and just about anywhere, uh, just uh, hop in your browser and Google Tomorrowland, the book by Stephen Kotler, S-T-E-V-E-N-K-O-T-L-E-R. Um, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us again on Conscious Shift. We look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. It's been fun. It, absolutely. It's been a, it's been, uh, a fun and uh, a, a exciting trip uh, into the future that is now. We'll be right back. This is Julianne Turner on Conscious Shift. visionaries, sages, and thought leaders have used a pattern of thought, an archetype of creation, to think dramatically differently from everyone else. In fact, these visionaries begin with an entirely different worldview that enables them to see beyond what is to what can be. The good news is that we can adopt the same worldview, literally a different thinking system that all world changers throughout time have used a profound and practical and profoundly different sequence of thought for the 21st century this universal thinking system was discovered and is now revealed in a revolutionary book called Genesis of Genius Genesis of Genius written by conscious shift host Julianne Turner is a full-color step-by-step visual guidebook to guide you to use this success system to discover and profit from sharing your own unique genius. Genesis of Genius, Julianne Turner's life work, and the foundation of her unparalleled success, guiding thought leaders and emerging visionaries across the globe to make both significant income and world-changing impact, is already a bestseller on Amazon and is now available to you at genesisofgenius.com. 
and for a limited time, you will receive $180 in special bonuses, plus an exclusive quick start guide, all available to you today when you buy your copy and register at genesisofgenius.com. This is your moment. Let this be your turning point, and let Genesis of Genius be your guide on your quest. Now is the time to come awake and get out of the loop of busyness and into the leap of your true greatness. The world is awaiting your brilliance. Visit GenesisOfGenius.com now and step into your greatness. Welcome back, everyone. This is Julianne Turner. I hope you've had as much fun here on Conscious Shift today exploring the future that is here now as I have. And I just want to uh, wrap up with saying, if you are ready to bring your own genius, your own brilliance into this brave new world that we've been exploring and talk about the potentials not only for the future of the planet, but the future for you, I just want to remind you, and most of you already know as conscious shifters, that every day I guide visionaries and thought leaders across the globe to actually discover their own signature genius and to profit from sharing that genius to make the impact and the income they deserve and desire by serving their own ideal tribe of loyal clients through sharing your gifts and packaging those gifts and offering experiences that transform. I would love to connect with you if that inspires you. Uh, You can request a one-on-one session with me. I'm making three, just three available for you in this uh, this moment. Just go to GeniusSession.com and you can request a one-on-one complimentary session with me. I'm only making three available But I would love to talk with you if you're inspired to get into your own conscious shift into sharing your genius with the world. This is Julianne Turner. We'll see you next time on Conscious Shift. You've been listening to Conscious Shift with your host, Julianne Turner. If you're ready to make your own conscious shift to awaken the power and singular greatness already within you, Julianne is your expert coach and trusted ally, your passionate professional guide to create your highest purpose, profitability, and potential in your life, work, and world. Just go now to Julianne's website, www.creatorsguide.com, and fill in the special pop-up. You'll instantly receive free access to invaluable resources and bonuses that will guide you forward. That's www.creatorsguide.com. Just go there now and fill in the special pop-up. Now is the time to shift into your greatness. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.